1: Side of this world. demon guard against the military industrial hunter. UFOs, paranormal folks. phenomena, and deep analysis of current world events. From somewhere in the desert, between Area 51 and Roswell, blasting across the planet, the Manticore Network proudly presents Fairy Facts. Because the truth will set you free. July 8, 1947, the Army Air Force has announced that a flying disc has been found and is now in the possession of the Army. I'm as as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! The power they took from the people will return to the people. The Matrix is everywhere. It is all around us. It is the world that has been pulled over your eyes to blind you from the truth. Shall I tell you what I find beautiful about you? Very fast when critics worse. Sooner you know later though, you always have to wake up. Be skeptical, but don't close your mind. Greetings to everyone around the world and a warm welcome to another edition of Veritas at VeritasRadio.com, where we ask questions and question the answers. I'm your host, Mel Fabregas, and I sincerely thank you for joining me once again. And if this is your first time, please make yourself at home. I want to thank you, very dust member, for making this program possible. Tonight's special guest is author and researcher, Brian Forster, directly from Cusco, Peru. We'll discuss the mystery of the elongated skulls. Was this a natural occurrence, extraterrestrial visitation, or was it a tribal ritual? Brian Forster will be with us shortly. To listen to the full interview, go to veritasradio.com and click on the subscribe link. You'll receive immediate access to this full interview and everything we have to offer from day one. Think about it, for the price of one latte, is what you pay per month. and You'll be exposed to hundreds of mind expanding interviews that you won't get anywhere else, commercial and censorship free. Subscribe today. And don't forget to visit our Veritas store, where you can buy MMS. It's better to have it and not need it, than need it and not have it, and it's so inexpensive. You can also buy our futuristic metal case USB drives with all of our seasons and bonus material. Visit the Veritas store for more information. And to get in touch with me, it's very simple. Click on the contact button of our website at veritasradio.com. Anthropologists suggest some elongated skulls were not deformed by bindings but belonging to an entirely different species. The scientific name for this is dolichocephaly. Most skulls exhibiting this condition were clearly the result of the practice of head binding, also called cranial deformation. What you are capable of doing via this technique is to change the shape of the skull but not the actual volume, and this is where the Paraca skulls become especially intriguing. Three distinct shapes of not necessarily elongated but altered skulls have been found in the area, and each seems to be unique to a particular graveyard of nobility, as in many societies those of the royal bloodline and of high spiritual positions were not buried in the same vicinity as commoners. Could the cranial deformations found have been made to emulate an ancient civilization that possessed greater abilities, and perhaps the tradition was adopted for generations? There are recent photographs showing a living man, today, with an elongated cranium. Could this subspecies still be alive today? To discuss this mystery and much more, Brian Forster is coming up next. This is Mel Fabregas, and you're listening to Veritas. This is Graham Hancock, and you're listening to the Veritas Show. Brian Forster was born in the United States, but moved to the west coast of Canada as a child, where he became immediately fascinated by the native traditions of people such as the Haida. He learned to carve totem poles, canoes, masks, and other ceremonial things for master native carvers, and became a professional sculptor at age 26 basically dropping his career as a marine biologist. In 1995, he moved to Maui, Hawaii, and was hired as assistant project manager for the building of the 62-foot double hull sailing canoe. There, having learned how to make Hawaiian outrigger canoe paddles from master carver Keola Sequeira, he started an online outrigger paddle business, which flourished internationally. Peru became his next major area of interest. The study of the Inca culture led to his writing a book, A Brief History of the Incas. He has now written 11 books and more are on the way. He's now the part-time assistant director of the Paracas History Museum, curating and giving archaeological tours of the area, with special emphasis on the elongated skull Paracas culture. And to learn more about Brian Forster and his work, visit his websites at visitparacas.com and hiddenincatours.com. And directly from Cusco, Peru, I would like to introduce for the first time on Veritas, Brian Forster. Hello, Brian, and welcome. How are you?
0: Thank you very much, Mel. I'm very well. How about you? I'm doing great, and
1: I'm so glad to have you on, Brian, because I was telling you offline that I've been visiting your your Facebook page for a while, and it must be one of the most fascinating and informative pages I've ever seen. And uh, I'm very curious to know, what motivated you to all of a sudden start traveling the world to find the answers you probably thought you couldn't get at home.
0: Uh, Basically, I grew up on the west coast of Canada, though I was born in uh, Minnesota. And there, of course, uh, is the native tradition of totem pole carving. So I became fascinated with that and uh, native carvers began teaching me their oral traditions and how to carve. Uh, So that was actually the beginning. And it's also because my parents were both uh, very much interested in global geography and history. Uh, They encouraged me to travel, which I did Did um, ever since I was quite young. And when
1: did you go to Peru? Because you've been there for quite some time, right?
0: Actually, I've I've been visiting Peru for about six years, Um, and it's you know it's basically uh, I've been following a a path of of native studies uh, mainly in the Pacific area. Uh, So um, after the west coast of Canada. And then Hawaii and Polynesia, um, I naturally seem to gravitate to South America and specifically Peru. Do you see any commonalities between
1: Polynesia, Hawaii, and the Incas and and the tribes in, in Peru? Do you see commonalities there?
0: I definitely do. There are a lot of uh, oral traditions about um, the fact that all of these people traveled on the ocean great distances, and they may be genetically uh, related to one another Mm -hmm. long before the time of uh, European exploration
1: and how of course we we think of uh Christopher Columbus as the person who discovered America but uh, Amerigo Vespucci Vespucci or Vespuccio was the one who came first and then the vikings came to this area why do we continue saying that columbus discovered america when so many came before
0: Oh, I think that's because, um, you know, there's a minority of people in power who want that kind of story told, um, as limiting as it is, as well as, you know, the history of humanity uh, humanity being limited to more or less, uh, you know, the Bible or about 6,000 years. The more that we do the research collectively, the more that we're seeing that our rich heritage as humanity is much older and much more intriguing than such a limited dogma as that. Now,
1: about Peru. Why is Peru so special? I, I speak with, with guests on a weekly basis, and Peru seems to be such a central location. If anybody wants to learn the, the origins of humanity, why is Peru so, so special?
0: Well, it seems to me that the two places on the planet that have the most intriguing and enigmatic stone structures are Egypt and Peru. Um, and uh, some of us are trying to see if there are connections between the two of them, but in both Egypt and Peru, as well as, you know, parts of Bolivia, you find these amazing ancient stone structures seemingly shaped by some kind of technology which conventional archaeology can't explain.
1: Now, well, how is it that with the technology that we have these days, and I ask this question all the time, we cannot replicate some of the the, the wonders that we find in Egypt, Peru, and many other countries.
0: Well, the thing is, if you talk to people like uh, Christopher Dunn, uh, who's the engineer who wrote uh, the Giza Power Plant, uh, he and I are going to be doing a tour next month together here in Peru. And his viewpoint is that we could do this kind of work, but it would be so time-consuming and so expensive that um, he fails to see um, how and why ancient cultures would have done things such as build incredible structures as the, you know, the Giza, the main Giza pyramid.
1: If today we find that to be so difficult to, I mean, he's saying, and I've heard this before, that we could replicate it, but it would take it's so much. How is it that with our technology today, thousands and thousands of years later, we say this, and then we, we talk about the 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 natives and, and, and the ancient ones as, uh, you know, in, in Western world, we call them soulless savages. How were they able to, 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 to build all these magnificent monuments all over the world?
0: Well, I think, along with, uh, you know, there are so many researchers that I'm fortunate to be in contact with, such as Graham Hancock. And he's the one who really started to talk about the fact that we're suffering from a sort of amnesia, mm-hmm. in that, once you go beyond 6,000 years in history, you, as you say, all, you know, all of a sudden, you know, before that, we're hunter gatherers and yet, you know, these monumental structures exist which are clearly older than, you know, the 6,000 year time frame. So he talks about an amnesia that we suffer from and a number of researchers are looking at the fact that the end of the ice age which was about 12,000 years ago was not some gentle event of the melting of the poles, it was catastrophic and that not only probably destroyed much of humanity but it also left thousands of years of this um, tendency to not want to remember what happened before.
1: And as uh, Graham calls it, it's the all of a sudden. So we see all of a sudden pyramids start to start building, being built in in uh, Egypt. The same thing in Mesoamerica. Why this all of a sudden, more or less at the same time?
0: Well, I think the thing is that a lot of these structures are incredibly ancient. Some people believe that the Great Pyramid is um, possibly 12,000 or 15,000 years old, mm-hmm. and that the Pharaonic people, the pharaohs, simply inherited that, and I think that's a ten that we're, uh, a tendency we're looking at. The same in Cusco. Um, almost all of the tour guides in Cusco say that the Inca built everything, the Inca having arrived in Cusco at about 1100 AD, but the more work that i I'm doing, it seems to me that when the Inca arrived, they found an abandoned city, which they named Cusco.
1: Why do you think the city was abandoned? Do you think it was because of a cataclysm?
0: I think so. The more uh, that we're researching this, um, and I just read a, uh, a paper, actually, that Dr. Robert Schock uh, wrote. Uh, of course, he, he's the one who, who was able to re- um, uh, you know, to figure out that the Sphinx in Egypt is much older than the, uh, than the pharaohs. And what he said, along with Dr. Paul Laviolette, was that there was some kind of burst of radiation from the galactic center about 12 or 13,000 years ago. And the energy that traveled uh, across the galactic plane um, disturbed the planets, including causing a mass ejection of energy, material from the sun, which scorched parts of the earth. That would have melted the poles very rapidly and uh, would have destroyed much of humanity as it existed at that time. Do you think
1: these civilizations, and the reason why I'm going to ask you this next question, because I've heard Dr. Shock and I've, I've heard Dr. Laviolet talk about this. For example, in Turkey, there, there are underground cities, if you will, that could, could house 28,000 people. And I think in my mind that they could have done that if they knew and they were cognizant of something that was coming. Do you think these civilizations were aware that these cataclysms were, there were, there were certain interval intervals and they would reappear?
0: I think so because you you hear a lot about that in oral traditions you t- you know you hear uh, even people like the Hopi of uh, the you know southwest United States talk about the fact that there have been different worlds of people and some of them did have to go underground in order to survive also around Cusco there are rumors and evidence of quite massive tunnel systems that the Inca didn't build, but it's possible that because of um, a possible pre-knowledge of these events coming, that certain individuals were able to escape uh, the cataclysm by hiding in the tunnels.
1: What I hear of, of cataclysms and, and the possibilities that this could happen again, it reminds me of uh, Barbara Hanclough's work, Catastrophobia, where she shows that a series of cataclysmic disasters. 11,500 years ago, rocked the world and left humanity's collective psyche chronically scarred. Do you think that this is why we have this fascination, expectation of apocalypse? And even I've talked to people when I tell them, look, nothing's going to happen in 2012. It's almost as if you're running in their parade because they really want something to happen. Why do you think this phenomenon is happening?
0: Well, that's a great point, and I just had a, a conversation with uh, Stephen Mailer, who you may have interviewed, and he's um, he's an oral tradition um, specialist of the uh, Egyptian ancient Egyptian culture, and that's what he was saying that we seem to have this almost subconscious fascination with disasters, <laughs> and that's why we love movies that, you know, that scare the hell out of us. Um, I, th- I think, and, and according to, I believe, what Barbara Hanclough and others say as well, is that we do have the subconscious uh, memory or knowledge of something terrible that happened in the past, and we're both afraid and on some level excited about the possibility of that happening in the future.
1: I think uh, th- this sounds to me more like a post-traumatic uh, stress disorder. Uh, and if that is the case, why are we always expecting a cataclysm? Almost, almost as if many like to live with that fear at a cellular level. Almost as if some people derive pleasure from it, and otherwise it's just boring.
0: Yeah, that could be. I mean, that's the whole fascination with you know the so-called countdown of the Mayan calendar, uh, like what you said, um, yeah, it's highly unlikely something's going to happen on the 21st of December itself, but people seem to be preoccupied with this event. Um and I, it seems like that's it's um not simply a subconscious thing. It might be a a genetic memory of past uh, cataclysms. That's right. That's
1: right. And in, in your findings in, in South America, I just want to ask you what I asked most of the researchers. What happened to the knowledge. Why is it that the, the ancient ones did not leave the the dare we say it blueprints? Is it because it was oral tradition and if a cataclysm occurred and they vanished, died or, or moved somewhere else, that's why we cannot replicate them?
0: I think so. I mean, you do find in the oral traditions, you you find stories about this, but um, unfortunately amongst people like uh, the Inca, they were so badly devastated by the Spanish conquest that um, much of their information either went underground or has been literally wiped out. But by decoding the oral traditions, which are written as poetry, they're not written as, um, you know – as straight stories, we're able to start to decode some of what history um, of the history of, of that area uh, was.
1: And it's interesting to to observe some of the pictures that you have on your website. For example, I remember one; I forgot the name, but it's a, it's a street, and on the in the right side you see stones being placed there by by the Inca, I believe, and on the left you see the the ones that that Spanish conquistadors. Put there, and it's such a huge difference in the way they were built. The ones on this on the right seem to be much older, and 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 the precision in which the stones were were put there. Why so much arrogance from the from the westerners when they came to America and they obliterated that magnificent culture that was here?
0: Well, the basic story of the Spanish was that they, you know, the the men who were the so-called conquistadors, including their leader Pizarro, were desperate. Uh they they left Europe because they were, you know, at the bottom rung of society. They had no future. Um Pizarro, for example, was a swineherd and he was also illegitimate. So it was this this rumor of this, you know, these these lands of gold that um, that lay to the west that caused a lot of them to, uh, to travel by ship. And um, unfortunately for them, most of them didn't have any money to pay their passage. So they had to re- you know, make repayments once they reached the New World. And that's why the conquistadors were desperate to find gold was to repay their bills.
1: And this is a topic that I hardly discuss with anybody, but I want to ask you just because we mentioned Christopher Columbus a few minutes ago, have you heard that uh, Christopher Columbus was a Sephardic Jew from from Catalonia, and he was not Italian, and he was hiding, and during the time of the Inquisition, of course, the Spanish Inquisition, and he had to hide the fact that he was a Jew, and that's why, you know, all of a sudden, the they concocted the story that he was from uh, 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 Genoa, Italy. Have you heard this story?
0: No, I haven't. But, you know, what I do know is that his name was not Columbus. It was Christabel Colón. Cristobal Colón, yes. And it's quite, you know, it's quite probable that he um, and others had foreknowledge of the fact that um, North America and South America existed, based on ancient maps, which were, you know, held by, you know, the so-called you know, secret societies. And it was finally because he was able to get uh, Isabel and Ferdinand to finance him that that's when the first conquest of of the Americas began, because they had the financing behind them.
1: Now, how do you think these maps existed? Uh, if if supposedly they haven't been around this part of the world, unless the Vikings did it before.
0: Well, supposedly in you know of course in the library at Alexandria in yeah. Egypt there was phenomenal information, and you know they say that the library was burned. Um, I think that a lot of that information was probably smuggled out and was kept in very private hands of uh, people of great power. Um, and so, with that, um, you know, you wait for the right opportunity to be able to, uh, to you know, to utilize the knowledge, um, which, you know, maps and, and other, other uh, documents contain, usually for, you know, reasons of plunder.
1: It makes you wonder what's uh, in the catacombs of the Vatican. I bet you, if you and I were able to go there for a few hours, we would find a lot of this information there.
0: I And I think we wouldn't be let out alive as well.
1: <laughs> I agree. Um, we're going to be talking about one aspect that fascinates me a lot. A few weeks ago, we discussed the crystal skulls with Joshua Shapiro. We're going to discuss a different type of skull, the elongated skull. I have a, a one camp that says that these deformations were, were man-made, others say that, that no, they were born that way, but I think I'm in the middle. Perhaps there were some that, that were that way, but uh, perhaps it was a, a superior race that lived among us, and the tribes wanted to emulate them and wanted to do it manually. Please explain.
0: That's exactly, I think, the point. And uh, David Hatcher Childress and I published a book in February of this year called The Enigma of Cranial Deformation, where we look globally at this phenomenon where you have these elongated, you know, some people call them cone heads. And the basic theory that we have is that um, the cranial deformation was a way of replicating or copying people who lived before who were naturally born with elongated skulls and that's why i'm in this little town called paracas in peru because this seems to be the global epicenter of where it's very easy for us to get hold of of these elongated skulls
1: and i I want to talk about paracas do you think uh, well not now let's talk about the nazca people do you think the nazca people were responsible for perhaps eliminating the paracas people
0: I think so. The more that I'm looking at it, the thing is that the Paracas people – uh, they they lived in the entire area which is called Nazca Canal. They they occupied quite a massive um, you know piece of real estate. It was only the nobility that had the elongated skulls. The uh, all of the others, the f- uh, fishermen, the agricultural people, etc. They were all normal humans, but it was the Paracas elite who had elongated skulls as well as auburn hair. And um, Even just recently, we uh, had a skull come into the museum here, which showed uh, signs of trauma on the head. And because the Paracas nobility disappeared about the year 100 to 200 AD, which is about the same time as the Nazca moved in, I think the Nazca, who were much more warlike, basically annihilated the Paracas.
1: Where did the Nazca people come from, do you know?
0: That is a question which we still don't really know. There was a a DNA study done by uh, German scientists about two years ago, and what they established is that both the Nazca and Paracas people are not genetically related to people of the highlands of Peru, so that's when I started to do my research on the book I just finished called um, Crimson Horizon, where I think that the Paracas and uh, people of coastal Peru are a blend of different cultures, including uh, the Polynesians.
1: Once again, there was obviously navigation then, if unless they came through through the the you know Alaska and so on. Do you think they actually navigated? Via water, or do they do it through land?
0: I think both. You know, the conventional thought is that um, you know the Bering Land Bridge existed before the end of the Ice Age, and that everyone came over. You know, all the Native Americans came over from Siberia that way. But um, that's that's kind of um, it, to me racist because it suggests that these people were too stupid to figure out how to you know how to create some kind of craft that could sail or even paddle. And it's a lot easier to transport people and cargo via water than it is to walk. Um, So the more that I research in Polynesia and other places, the more evidence there is of very ancient seafaring um, throughout not only the Pacific, but globally. And that's where we're starting to look more and more at the possibility that there was a maritime culture that we we label as Atlantis that existed 12,000 years ago or older.
1: And even the Chinese, I hear that uh, they've had maps even before Columbus came along. I've also heard that uh, some of the dynasties found out that there were explorers leaving China to to explore the world. And when they came back, they burnt all those ships to avoid them from leaving again, because apparently they wanted to be kept in the dark. Do you think that uh, there's credence to that story?
0: I think so. I I believe that's based on a book called 1491. And... um, uh, supposedly, the emperor that um, that built this massive fleet of wooden ships—you know, some of them I, I think were hundreds of feet long—he basically bankrupted the entire culture, and so that's one reason why they didn't want this to continue. But the Chinese have been, of course, traveling uh, the Pacific for a, a lot longer than we give them um, um, credence for.
1: You mentioned auburn hair. I'm looking at, uh, and uh, if you allow me, I'd like to share it uh, on our website as well. Of uh, two, can I can I say they're not mummies, but they're they're uh, dead. I mean, they're red head skulls. Two, a male and a female with red head uh, red hair. And the first thing that you look at is, wait a second, how, how do they have red hair? But instead of looking that alone, I also look at the, at the attire, at the way the the the, the these uh, clothes were were made as well. This is just incredible for the time.
0: Yeah, that's very true. One thing about the Paracas culture, who existed at least three thousand years ago, was that their fabrics were, and textiles were incredibly fine, much finer than the later Inca. Um, so that's one of the aspects that makes the Paracas mysterious. Beyond the fact that they were, you know, had elongated skulls with red hair, and they were quite tall. They seem to have averaged at least about six feet tall. Um, so you know, that's. That's my fascination with being in what would other uh, otherwise be a very small seaside town.
1: Yeah. This uh, this picture that I'm looking at here were these two bodies buried or were they found the way you're showing them on the picture?
0: It's most likely that they were ex- you know so-called excavated by tomb robbers. That's a problem that we have in this area is that you have. Uh, you know, thousands of years of history, you have quite large populations that existed, and because they were quite sophisticated cultures who had uh, pottery, silver, and gold, as well as the textiles, there's a, a huge international market in all of these things, and so there are people here called waqueros, which are grave robbers, and they, you know, they plunder the tombs and basically leave the skeletons lying on the surface. Um because they do their work at night and it's completely illegal.
1: And of course, I have to ask you about the red hair. Could it be that the the, the red hair was uh, they changed with time and the, and the the melanin changed, or do you think that they really had red hair?
0: Well, that's something that um, much more research has to be done on. You know, I'm not a, a, a scientist in that area, so I don't really know. But what I do know is that we found a number of skulls that have black hair. And in general, when you find a Nazca uh, culture skull, it um, if it's still partially preserved, um, it will have black hair. Um, so the red hair is kind of rare, but not unique. We have, uh, you know, examples of that in our museum here in Paracas.
1: That's why I ask you, because I've also heard about the red hair mummies in China, which China, for some reason, is not too happy that we try to to, to discover that uh, perhaps Europeans moved to that area of the world. You look into that too, I guess.
0: Oh, definitely. And and you'll find that almost all over the world when you have a dominant culture, uh, even if it has quite a long ancestry in a given place, the thought that somebody existed before them who may have been as or even more sophisticated than them is often the subject of a cover up. It's yeah. not just the Chinese, but you find that in in many other cultures as well.
1: In Egypt also as well. I'm not sure how familiar you we are with all uh, after the Arab Spring and Sahih Hawaj. Do you think that with the new regime there, things may open up a little bit more? Because a lot of the information coming from Egypt was pretty sequestered by the, the regime in Sahih Hawaj.
0: Oh, definitely. And I'm very fortunate in that I'll be traveling to Egypt uh, this coming April with Stephen Mailer. We're going to have a tour there um, along with um some Egyptian experts, and um, what we're looking at is is what uh, Stephen's great teacher um, said, and that's that the Egyptian culture, or as he calls it, the Kemetian culture, dates back several thousand years before the pharaohs, um, and the pharaohs simply adopted everything that happened to be there. For example, you know, uh, the you know the Great Pyramid was named after a given pharaoh because he probably decided he wanted his name on it.
1: So, same with the uh, Sphinx. That probably was not the face of a pharaoh, and that's why the the face is smaller the, in, in in relation to the body.
0: Well, exactly. The you know the face of the of the Sphinx has been obviously recarved because it's incomplete. You know, it's the proportions are completely off, and um, the detail on it is much finer than it is on the body. So that looks like the, uh, the, the reshaping of the face was done. Possibly not once, but maybe more than, uh, than once. Right, right. And another picture I'm looking at, and I'm trying to,
1: to paint a picture to the listeners. I, I see a picture here, and this is uh, in Tiwanaku, the Tiwanaku uh, skulls. I'm looking at all of them, and they all look different from one another. But the important thing here is that they were taken off display by the government permanently. Please explain.
0: Well, that's the odd thing. I've been to Tiwanaku, uh, Pumapunku, which are basically the same site, just um, south of the, the shores of Lake Titicaca many times. And the museum there, I've gone into trying to see this collection of skulls they have because I've seen many photos on the internet. But every time I've been there, the display's been closed. And the last two times I was there, I was told that um, that they were cleaning the skulls. You know, months later, I went back, and they're still cleaning them. And even yesterday, a Dutchman came into the museum here at Paracas, and he said he got the same story last week. So... There seems to be some kind of cover-up. Someone in the government doesn't want the elongated skull phenomenon at Tiwanaku to be studied. And I don't know why, but that seems to be the case. I
1: know that you you don't like to speculate. Can you speculate? Why do you think the government is saying no?
0: Well, I think it's possible that there's pressure from... Maybe um, Catholic ideology mm. about that, um, because these people, if you know, if it's true that, that we do find examples of elongated skulls which are natural, in that they were born that way, that would represent um, a subspecies or different species from us, and that goes against the basic uh, you know traditions of most cultures. Uh, and definitely goes against what archaeology is trying to tell us. Um, So I think for those reasons, you know, know, the classic case of of a cover-up is in the Indiana Jones film, where they, you know, they find the Ark of the Covenant, and then it's taken to the United States, put in a box, and hidden, you know, forever. And there are multiple cases where that is happening, where um, certain artifacts that don't fit with the conventional thought and uh, Klaus Donna is, you know, is one of the masterminds behind uh, um, exposing this. There are so many cases where pieces don't fit the standard puzzle, and so they're hidden away. But there's more and more of a hunger from humanity to know the true nature of who we are and where we came from. And so, bit by bit, we're able to expose all of this.
1: Absolutely. And uh, another strange thing that I, I was looking at here in, in, on your website is the… the Testimony of Francisco de, Chiroga, de Chicora. You remember that, right?
0: Mm, no, I don't.
1: <laughs> well, I you, don't. You, you post so many pictures. This is, uh, let me read the, uh, a little excerpt here. Another strange thing from these first eyewitnesses' accounts of ancient America is a story of the natives told these by Spaniard, Spaniards. They claimed that in the past, a group of men with scales and long tails once visited them and lived among them but died out. Do you think this is folklore? Or do you think that mermaids and mermen may have existed?
0: That I don't really know about. I haven't done too much looking into that. I I think um, any thought of of um, of of that uh, or representation of that again is oral tradition. And so they're trying to explain something much more poetic than simple a simple story that there were people with scaly skin. You know, there, again, it, it could have been a subrace of of humanity that existed and either died out or intermixed with with normal humans, and so those characteristics disappeared.
1: Now we can go back to Greek mythology and say the same thing, and and uh, we need to start demythologizing history because a lot of the the word mythos uh, it's actually different than what we were led to believe. It's sworn statements by kings and priests under uh, affidavits of uh, and statements by priests and kings. Yet we are led to believe that they're simply folklore.
0: Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, the whole thing about the, you know, the the small g gods is that they were most likely people of some kind. It's just that they were so incredibly intelligent and knowledgeable that they, through time, become um, fictionalized and uh... you know their proportions start to grow um... you know they may have been tall. you know the same thing with the concept of giants you know there were probably very tall people who existed here in south america and in paracas um, you know who were quite tall like six feet seven feet tall and in comparison to the local population who would be five feet tall these people would be regarded as giants but through time people start to exaggerate and elaborate um, and, uh, you know, so I, I think that's uh, something, again, where you have to be a little more discerning in terms of um, interpretation.
1: Unless you can actually measure uh, bones these days, and I think we have. But uh, you mentioned something interesting that you speculate that maybe the reason why the government wants to remove these skulls permanently is because of perhaps the Catholic Church doesn't want people to know that not all humans were created in his image, if you know what I mean
0: i yeah, I think that's a very good point, and i I think the the history of humanity is far more complex and fascinating than the stories told by one specific ideology or another
1: now giants, uh, a few years ago, one of our listeners uh, uh, whose father lives in southern Iran, uh, sent me some pictures after an earthquake unearthed a, a a very large archaeological site in southern Iran Iran. And they found the skeletons measuring about eight and nine feet tall of women. Women. Have you heard about that story?
0: No, I haven't. But the whole thing is that that area, Iran, Iraq, you know, the the Fertile Crescent is so ancient that I'm sure there is so much information still buried, you know, literally buried in the sand that um, hopefully will come to light. And the, the same, of course, in Egypt and other places. Now, that area,
1: many people call it the birthplace of, of humanity, but there are others who say no, it's other Africa, others say no, it could be somewhere in, in, in South America. Have you come to your own conclusion as to where you think the first humans originate from?
0: Well, I I honestly think somewhere in Africa, you know, I, I believe in, in most of the basic um, migration pattern thoughts that uh, the birthplace of humanity was Africa, and people spread out from there. But, you know, when – when people talk about the birthplace of civilization, that's a completely different topic, because I'm sure civilizations developed all over the world, and it just depends upon where you study, and to some degree, you know, your own genetic background. People from the Middle East, of course, would be very proud to think that, you know, the first civilization started there, the Chinese seem to be to some degree adamant that theirs is the oldest civilization. So it's, um, it's far more complicated and, and richer than what most people think.
1: And how about uh, what others say that we had so many. We had uh, the Caucasoid, the Negroid, the Astroloid, and so on, that could have emerged from different parts of the world. In other words, I don't want to sound religious, but different atoms in every continent, if you will.
0: That's possible. I, I do believe there's a, you know, that there would be a common route to humanity somewhere. Um, and again, I think it's Africa. But um, in terms of the, you know, the different uh, types of people you see, you know, and, and the history, again, it's it's richer and um, goes back a lot longer than I think most people think.
1: And how about modern tools? I'm looking at at some of your pictures here, and I can always. I scratched my head thinking how in the world were they able to carve these stones these ways with astonishing precision. What do you think they used?
0: Well, the more that we're looking at it, I'm fortunate in that I've been able to bring... um, engineers uh, down to Peru, one from uh, England and uh, Arlen Andrews from the United States, and uh, both are very experienced engineers, and I've shown them examples of this, you know, of, of holes, you know, bored through hard stone and things, and asked them, the first question I ask is, could the Inca have done this based upon the tools in the archaeological record, which are bronze chisels and stone hammers and they both said no that's impossible so then um, the next question is how would we have accomplished that and then they have their own ideas in terms of um, different types of technology we have but then again looking back in time it's like well how would you um, hypothesize these ancient people could have done this and that's where they basically don't have an answer But the theories we're developing are that ancient people had technology not like ours but of of another form, possibly sonic technology or possibly other kinds of vibrational technology which are theoretical to us.
1: That's right. And we think, uh, Western world thinks, chiseled with hammers, because that's what we speculate that people in that time of the world, if they're at war, sticks and stones, if they were trying to cover stone, chisels and hammers, why couldn't we accept the fact that maybe by looking at those structures that they had the technology, as you say, and why is it that we cannot find any any artifacts that show the technology?
0: Well, that's is that's one of the biggest um hurdles. And of course people like Christopher Dunn, uh Graham Hancock and and others have um you know have suffered from vicious attacks by academics yeah. saying saying where are the tools? The thing is that um through people like uh Christopher Dunn, Stephen Mailer, and others, they've found artifacts in the the main museum in Cairo that look like they are parts of ancient technological tools. Uh, I think the basic theory that makes sense is that because these ancient civilizations were so far back in time um, after they were destroyed by cataclysm or whatever that later primitive cultures that would move into the area would find these examples of technology and then simply take them apart because they had no idea how they worked so anything any kind of tool that had gold or silver or crystals or anything as components would naturally be stripped from the tools and then over the course of hundreds or even thousands of years, the parts would become so scattered that um, y- there would be no way to put them back together. A-, a basic, you know, analogy I would give is that if you threw a cell phone, you know, into the jungle somewhere, yeah. and, and some culture that was Stone Age found it, they wouldn't know how to use it. But the little bright sh- uh, shiny bits, they'd probably take those apart and make jewelry out of yeah. them. So after a very short period of time, you don't have a cell phone, but you've got some, you know, pretty fancy people walking around.
1: <laughs> That's right. I always think of, the, of a very similar analogy to yours, maybe dropping a, a computer mouse in the Amazon or, or parachuting a computer. First of all, they would need electricity, and they wouldn't even know what to do with it. So as you say, they probably would break her apart and, and wear it as something that came from the heavens. Exactly. And how about uh, academia? government or, or religious institutions have you in your travels in in your in your quest for 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 history and truth have you bumped into into them at all
0: yeah actually a fair bit i was very fortunate in that uh, two years ago graham hancock made me his author of the month on his website Good. and so and so what he asked me to and that was my first book a brief history of the incas and so what he asked me to do was that he has a, like a forum or a board where people ask questions and so I you know I put some certain statements and uh you know uh numbers down and things like that and was viciously attacked <laughs> by Bye. By academics who would not give their real names, um, and so at first I was, I was, you know, caught off guard. But it was actually a very good training ground for me because that's, it's the sort of thing that you have to become. I wouldn't say thick-skinned about, but you do have to be able to defend your opinion with scientific evidence. Otherwise, it's easy for for academics to just tear you to pieces.
1: No wonder Graham is writing, just wrote a science fiction book because he knows that they can't attack him that way.
0: Oh, I think so. And Graham's done so much, you know, he was such a, a, a groundbreaker with all of this that I don't blame him <laughs> whatsoever for not continuing the pursuit. But thankfully, he's supportive of me and many others who are, are doing it, you know, based upon, for me at least, reading fingerprints of the gods.
1: Well, oh, then that's only one section. I mean, uh, he's so admired, he has, he has such a big following around the world that I think that he should start writing again uh, nonfiction as well because there's plenty of people who want to know the truth that way. But uh, once again, academia, just because they don't understand something, they bring science which cannot understand it either. How Are we ever going to get academia to realize that not everything that we study is the truth?
0: I think so. It'll take time. You know, some people say it takes generations, but that's, you know, honestly, that's the reason why after four years of of studying science at university, I just decided not to continue with my PhD because uh, the scientists I was exposed to were, they kept their brains in boxes (laughs) and and they, they wouldn't look outside and even, you know, Welcome any kind of suggestion outside of their specific field, and I found that so you know like so dull that um I refuse you know the day I graduated from university, I was happy to leave, and I'm very thankful through my travels through uh you know, spiritual and philosophical pursuits that you know I and others are developing more of a of a rounded picture of history rather than saying i am a you know specifically a this or a that. So when people say, well, are you an archaeologist, um, in terms of training, no, but um, I'm gleaning information from many fields, and I'm simply one you know, one little cog in a huge machine of, uh, of new thinkers um, who are collectively coming together to solve these problems.
1: And I think that's exactly what academia wants. They want you to specialize, to, to obtain your, your PhD, so that they can keep you in that silo. And I think of two distinguished gentlemen who are the exception, in my opinion. You mentioned Dr. Paul Laviolette and Dr. Robert Schock. These are people who came from academia, and even Robert Schock still there. But they can walk the path that we walk and realize that, wait, there's more to this than what academia is teaching us.
0: Oh, exactly. I mean, I'm, I'm very fortunate in that I'll be meeting... Uh, Dr. Shock, because he's coming on a tour uh, with me and a, a company called Megalithomania from England in November. We're going to Tiwanaku and Pumapunku. We're also going to Easter Island, where he's been once, and I'll get to spend, I think it's about seven days with him, and explore the secrets and uh, mysteries of Easter Island and Tiwanaku with his incredible brain. Absolutely. And
1: I saw a presentation last year in Sedona, uh, Dr. Shock, and talking about Easter Islands and the findings of those wonderful statues that until recently they were not excavated to find out that they have full bodies and they have hieroglyphs, almost as if there's a message there. Have you looked into these?
0: Yes, I was actually on Easter Island in February, and I was very fortunate in that um, I have a, a very good friend who is a member of the royal family of um, of Easter Island, which they call Rapa Nui, and she said there are more than 200 of these you know, giant stone figures. Most people think of the Easter Island heads, but what they don't realize is that it's not just the head. The full bodies are buried under the ground. Um, so some of them are more than thirty feet tall. Since you were
1: to, you've been to to Easter Island, that uh, have you found w- what happened to the the actual statues? Uh, that we only see the heads. Were they covered by perhaps sand and and and, and wind, or were they purposely buried?
0: Uh, the story I hear from the local people is that they were buried on purpose, and it was um, a major change in the. That happened in the history of the people. There were, you know, there were these uh, two different cultures that coexisted: the long ears and the short ears. The long ears were the people who were dominant um, over the short-eared people, who were the workers. And so, uh, in their history, it reached a point where the short-eared people d- chose to overthrow the long ears. And so, that's when this culture of having the, the big stone figures ended and so the burying of them was was done symbolically and on purpose to end that you know that era of their uh civilization
1: but this was this is probably one of the most remote islands in the world am i right thousands of miles from the nearest uh population how do you think oh, def- how do you think yeah. they made these statues
0: um, I don't think it's it's that complicated because the stone itself isn't very hard. Um, the, the question that Robert Shaw has is that some of the figures seem to be made out of basalt, which is a very hard stone. And that's why we're going to be going in November so that he can continue his research on that. And we're hoping or we will be making a documentary of his findings Uh, because one thing he believes is that the basalt itself is not on the surface, whereas the softer stone that most of the uh, giant figures are made from is on the surface. He thinks it might be underwater, and that indicates that the basalt figures might be thousands upon thousands of years old.
1: And uh, speaking of Dr. Schock, uh, it was our mutual friend Gary Evans who recommended you, Brian, and also he's going to be bringing Dr. Shock to Veritas in the next uh, few weeks, so stay tuned on that one. Do you think that, uh, I'm just thinking of DNA, some people say that perhaps our DNA was active before, do you think that what we call junk DNA today was not junk before and it was active and perhaps that's why we find so many archaeological marvels in the past?
0: I think so. I'm, you know, I'm not much of an expert, of course, on that. But I'm fortunate to be working with Lloyd Pye of the Star Child Project, um, who I'm sure you know about. And sure. Lloyd has been, Lloyd has been assisting us with the beginnings of uh, DNA studying of the elongated skulls. Uh, one thing he's found is that he believes that the connection between primates and humans doesn't exist because we have. Uh, 23 pairs of chromosomes and supposedly all the primates have 24 pairs so there seems to be a pair of chromosomes that were turned off he thinks on purpose by some kind of possibly extraterrestrial intelligence that came here and uh, manipulated humanity and of course that's something that you find in the Bible and other um, you know other doctrines as well. Yeah, yeah. And uh, going back to that uh, picture that you have uh, that shows
1: on the left the the structure made by the Spaniards and on, on the uh, right, this is called, I believe, let's see, uh, you were working on your lost Technology book and you presented both in the picture. We keep thinking that they use lasers. But have you come across anybody who says that perhaps sound was used, sound resonance to shape, cut, and, and even move the stones?
0: Well again that's hypothetical but one thing that um, Christopher Dunn did is uh, during the filming actually ancient aliens um he and I were on an episode together which was about Pumapunku and Tiwanaku and he was able to show uh Giorgio you know the the host of the show sure. Uh, exactly what a laser does, uh, because everyone loves to speculate about lasers cutting stone. But uh, what Chris showed was that lasers melt stone, and mm. so they don't they don't create a really nice clean cut in stone. They can do beautiful work when it comes to cutting steel. But when it comes to stone, it uh, lasers melt the stone and they leave a very rough edge. So that doesn't um, explain what happened, especially at the site called Pumapunku, because there we find evidence of astonishing levels of technology. Um, I, I mean flat, beautifully flat, um, hard stone surfaces where if you take a, a metal ruler, modern metal ruler, and put them on the flat surface, it's completely flat. As in, uh, you can't see light underneath the the contact between the uh, ruler and the stone itself. And no one so far can really explain how a primitive culture could have done that. I'm looking at that specific pic- picture that uh, you're showing the, the metal ruler. And
1: yes, the edges are completely intact, very smooth. Uh, how about uh, water? Could water pressure may have been used to cut the stones.
0: That's possible. Again, that's um whenever we enter an area like this that's outside of my field of expertise, I definitely um would say the best person to talk to would be, you know, Christopher Dunn or also Arlen Andrews or other engin- you know engineers when it comes to engineering questions, I prefer to um, you know to say please ask an engineer rather than me because I I um that's what I you know the thing I love is the fact that I'm in contact with so many experts in different fields, then I, can, you know, I can say, well, you know, this person is the best person uh, to answer that question. Yeah,
1: and I promise you that I, we won't hold it against you. And, and I'm glad that you always refer to to those who you think are experts in the field. But I, I continue looking at your pictures here, and it's just amazing looking at these structures. And the, another one, uh, seamless precision on the edges, and we cannot even do that today. And even talk about standing. After the test of time, you know, so many earthquakes you see, uh, you know, in Japan, you see it in Mexico, you see it in California. It just takes a, a few, a few degrees and then boom, those structures are gone. But most of these structures around the world are still standing. How is it that they're earthquake proof, most of them?
0: That's the astonishing thing and of course you know uh, again you know people will refer to uh, sites in Egypt which are phenomenal in terms of megalithic construction and in terms of the city of Cusco and the Sacred Valley area which is around that um that's why more and more I'm developing you know I think quite a strong theory that Cusco existed before the Inca because whoever these ancient builders were they had the capacity of fitting large blocks of stone together without any kind of mortar or glue or adhesive. And um, they have easily withstood major earthquakes. The last one... Was in 1950, which devastated Cusco. And what it did um, is it destroyed a lot of the col- uh, colonial buildings that the Spanish built, and actually exposed the older Inca and and even older um, buildings. As a result of that, the you know the super ancient buildings didn't move whatsoever.
1: I guess that was that's the answer to my next question. I was going to ask you: Do you think that they build these structures? To, to 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 endure earthquakes or did they build the structures in places where they knew that perhaps uh, it was not close to a fault line and they would not be affected by earthquakes but you're saying that there were earthquakes right in the middle where some of these structures are and they survived?
0: Oh yeah. I mean the thing is that um Uh, Peru because it's volcanic you know the Andes are actually volcanoes so um, earthquakes are very common we had a tremor here you know three days ago and I'm I'm getting used to it like people in Los Angeles do (laughs) but uh, Cusco has been you know has been hit very hard over time and I think beyond making them earthquake proof that these super ancient builders were for some reason they wanted the precision fitting not simply to make them earthquake proof but they wanted the Buildings themselves to resonate as if they were a single block of stone. Mm. For yeah. Yep. Yeah.
1: Oh, did I lose you? No. Nope. Oh, okay. Okay. No, I was agreeing with what you were saying. Please proceed.
0: So that's, you know, that's, again, uh, you know, I'll simply have to uh, continue my work. I'm actually moving to Cusco at the end of this month because that's where my interest is is becoming more and more concentrated, is finding more and more evidence of the fact that uh, I think Cusco is 12,000 or more years old and not simply um, a city built by the Incas a 1,000 years ago.
1: Now, some of these structures are found in, in Peru in high altitudes some people say oh they were moved with the uh, trees but some of these areas are so high that trees don't even grow there how, how do you reconcile that
0: well that's a good point
1: thank you very much for listening to the first segment of this interview we will continue with Segment 2 with our special guest in the Veritas member section. Just go to our website, veritasradio.com, and click on the subscribe link to listen to the rest. We'll take a short intermission, listen to some music, and we'll be right back with Segment 2 in the member section. Enjoy! Enjoy!
0: This is Robert Bouval and you're listening to The Veritas Show.